I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have something very, very interesting for you today. We're very excited. Alex, who have we got? You're such a liar. The last time anyone spoke about this on the podcast, you went, what, is this even a thing? I've never <laughs> heard of this. But anyway, that's why he's here. Spencer Jones is an award-winning historian and author. Frankly, he's a giant of early 20th century military history from the University of Wolverhampton. We've invited him here today to talk about something that just baffled everyone down the pub a few weeks ago. Lockie told a story about the Battle of Lenzo and was met by a sea of just blank, disinterested, half-drunk faces. So Spencer is going to give us all a crash course in the Second Boer War. Hello, Spencer. Hello, ladies. It's great to be on the show. I love it. And you're so excited about having a cartoon, aren't you? Oh, it's the, it's the sole reason that I, I got into history. Someone can make a cartoon character, caricature of me and oh, I'm going to print it out, pin it on the wall. It's going to become part of the scenery, I tell you. You you jest, but I said to you, will you do History Hack? And you said, will I get a cartoon was the first thing you asked. Absolutely. You know, I mean, how often, how many other podcasts offer a cartoon for a speaker? I don't think any. So you've got a real unique catchment here. And I'm all about that life, I have to say. We're special. Joe, I googled you to do your bio. How many people confuse you with Spencer Jones, the comedian who looks like a reject from Oasis and is quite creepy looking? Because he comes up and basically pollutes all of the search results on you. Well, years ago, nobody, because he, he wasn't around. But now he pollutes all the search results. And brilliantly, I was about two years ago now, I had an email from what I think was his agent um, complaining that I was appearing on IMDB under the Spencer Jones name, which is actually, we both appeared on this same documentary, um, Alex. It was Great War in Numbers. And so I've got a tiny uh, IMDB credit yeah. for, for that and one or two other things. And I think it was his agent wrote to me and said that I was uh, I was stealing his identity or something like that. And um, I oh. wrote back to him fairly joking and said, I'll be happy to sell him my identity for a suitable fee. I never heard anything <laughs> back. So, oh, he's just dear. taken it by force. He's just taken over the Google search results. And uh, um, you know, one of his acts seems to be dressing as a, a, a giant man-sized baby, which I can assure you is something I want no part of. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Oh, you know that's going to be the cartoon now, don't you? Oh, no. no. <laughs> you shouldn't have said it. You're, no, I would, I would not lawyers. do that to you. No, you're going to be in some epically cool uh, army uniform. From, After a pith helmet to hoy, yes. Pith helmet, definitely. <laughs> not in a giant baby costume, because oh, frankly, that's just creepy. Uh, we did discuss whether or not you'd have a G&T with you, so we decided that it is the weekend and that if yes. you added a splash of orange juice it's basically legally a brunch drink so did you go with it 
I've got it. Yep. It's by my side. Bit of Bombay Sapphire, a nice bit of fish. (gasps) You said Bombay Sapphire. Yes. See, this is it. We had Lockie, Andrew Mm. Locke, revealed the other day that he drinks Gordon's. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I need to have a drink to take the taste of that out of my mouth. I know. Thank you is all I have to say because he tried to. I'd like no, no, this is a decent enough drink at home. No, Lockie, no, it does not cross the threshold. No, uh, I'm so disappointed so, in him. Next time I, I see him, yeah. I'll look up to that big tall face. And well, I it's a good say, job he's finished studying under you. Otherwise, you'd fail him for that, wouldn't you? Immediate fail, immediate yeah. fail, rejection. I'd have his ID card blocked so he can get in the building. It, it would be <laughs> that's the level of seriousness I'd have. Yeah, and, and that, with. frankly, without jail time, would be a win for him. Poor Lockie. He is so going to listen to this because I know he loves a bit of Burt War. And (laughs) God love him, he was just preaching to an utterly dead choir when he tried to talk about Galenzo a few weeks ago. So I guess everyone, definitely Alina, because she really was like, what, what, what? what?" I was a a, what you call, I was a judge that day as well, which makes it even worse. (laughs) She she was like, is he making this war up? No, no. So. I guess then to what we need to do is a brief history of South Africa, don't we? And say like what the situation was and why it kicked off. So there's a few elements to that. So, I mean, who are the Boers slash Afrikaners? The Boers are the descendants of Dutch immigrants who arrived at what's now Cape Town in the mid 1600s. And it was founded as a, a stopover station for ships going to the Dutch East Indies. And in the decades that followed, the population grew slowly. Dutch immigrants, German immigrants and some French Huguenots. But they were a really long way from Dutch control. Their legal system became quite unique as a result. So did their religious outlook. They were very much old fashioned, diehard Calvinists. And their language changed as well. And certainly by the mid-1700s, about 100 years after they'd arrived, they got their own identity and started to describe themselves as Afrikaners, literally Africans in the Dutch language. And they also described themselves as Boers, which just means farmer, mm-hmm. because most of the trade around this region was agricultural. Beyond the initial port facilities of Cape Town, it was a farming region at this time. And what really characterises the Boers is that they're super independence they're independently minded they've got a real what we would call a frontier outlook so everybody's against them they can only rely on themselves and they're a very insular people even though they're still officially a dutch colony until the early 1800s they have little interaction with holland or the netherlands itself so they're this fiercely independent in some ways quite old-fashioned people with their own unique tick to their language. It takes on board African words um, and also some German and French words as well. They are a a really sort of unusual grouping in uh, Southern Africa, the only significant white colony in Southern Africa, uh, indeed anywhere in Africa, up until the the early 1800s. I'm just, the only thing going through my mind, does that mean that Frank de Boer, the footballer, is literally Frank the farmer? It certainly does, yes. That does not sound nearly as impressive, (laughs) cosmopolitan in English, does it? It doesn't, no, it really (laughs) doesn't, but it's the way it is. (laughs) So the Dutch are there, but obviously this is imperialism, which means our grubby mitts are all over it as well, so British involvement in South Africa. It comes from the results of the Napoleonic Wars, so... In 1806, the British get really worried about, the, the, about Cape Town because the French and the, uh, the Dutch are now in a, an alliance as part of the Napoleonic Wars, and the, the Dutch give the French permission to base warships in Cape Town. So the British say, well, that's absolutely not happening. 
they land at Cape Town, they defeat the very small Boer garrison there, and they take over Cape Town, and by extension, what becomes Cape Colony, or now just the Cape. This is made formal in 1815 at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. In some ways, the Dutch don't really want anything to do with the, uh, with the Afrikaans anymore. They don't pay any taxes, which is an interesting feature. They, there's no taxation that goes back to Holland. So the colony isn't really worth much to them. So they're quite happy to hand over these quite difficult people to the British. And so the British take over Cape Town and take over Cape. But they've inherited this, this pretty rebellious and independently minded population of Boers. And estimates about how many Boers there are vary somewhere between 40 and 60,000. So not that many, but these are very independently minded men and women. And when the British take over, they we really underestimate how independent the Boers are. We've got no shared legal system. We don't have a shared language. We don't really have a shared religion because Boer religion is so old-fashioned. It's, it's like 1600s Protestantism. It's very intense, almost a form of Puritanism. And so there's absolutely no shared, there's no shared ground here whatsoever. And straight away, there are problems between the British and the Boers. And the big one initially is tax, because the British say, well, you're going to have to pay some tax for the upkeep of this colony. And the Boers say, I really don't think that's going to happen. Various tensions arise. And what really then sets things off and, and makes all sorts of problems from this point is in the 1830s, Britain abolishes slavery. And the Boers are a, a slaveholding a state or slaveholding slave holding colony, they are absolutely not prepared to give up their slaves. And that's the trigger point for of what's going to happen next. So what is the great trick? It's what follows the British decision to abolish slavery. And mm. within a few years of this being made, the Boers who are already really are not happy with it, with British rule, the Boers are, are absolutely pig sick of this. They are, furious about the abolition of slavery and they are furious about the fact that the British have made citizens within Cape, black citizens within Cape, have the same citizen rights as whites. The Boers have got a very insular and I would say racist outlook towards black Africans that even by the standards of the early 1800s, the British find quite shocking. And to Boer eyes, the British liberalism towards the blacks is equally shocking. So the two are just not working together. And so by the late 1830s, the Boers decide they've had enough and a big proportion of the Boer population decides to head east on what's known as the Great Trek. And perhaps as much as a third of the Boer population from South Africa decides to undertake this trek. The idea is to get away from British control, get into eastern South Africa, which is relatively poorly mapped, although they know it's, know there's quite a lot of um, you know, farm, potentially a, a good agrarian land out there. Mm-hmm. Head east, found some new homelands where the Boers can do what they like. And so they depart, perhaps as I say, perhaps a third of the population, perhaps somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 Boers, in a series of treks that head east, a bit like pioneers heading west in the United States, and attended by many of the same problems. So problems of disease, problems of the weather, problems of lack of supply. And crucially for the Boers, they run into, uh, in eastern South Africa, they run into the main kingdom in eastern South Africa, which is the Zulu kingdom. And they fight a, a pretty vicious battle there blood river port in 1838 which defeats the zulus and allows the boers to to, uh, create some new nation states which later become orange free state and transvaal for the british that the fact that the boers have left is initially a bit of a relief because well they were a pain anyway but then it becomes a problem because as the british quickly realize these boers are going to they're going to run into existing african kingdoms there's going to be wars there's going to be trouble there's going to be refugees and eventually these boards are going to have to be dealt with 
in some way, shape or form. So the, the British let the Boers go and they let them found these states. But almost from day one, the British and the Boers continue to have an antagonistic relationship. The British got interests in eastern South Africa, Natal, um, uh, will become a colony. Durban's been founded as a port in the late 1830s. Uh, there's some small engagements between the British and the Boers in the 1840s, and the two countries never, ever get on. And as the British expand their control of South Africa, they run up against the borders of these Boer states, and further problems are in store. That's it, isn't it? So the first Boer War is 1880-81, to 81, and it's smaller, and that's when it kicks off between the two. That's right. The 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 two two nations uh, never got on. There's been all sorts of tensions in South Africa in the 1870s, wars between the Boers and neighbouring African tribes, wars between African tribes and uh, each other, wars between African tribes and the British, most notably the Zulu War in 1879. So it's been a really unstable period in the 1870s. What that period's done is actually establish British and Boer rule over eastern South Africa over the existing African tribes. But then, of course, with the threat of the Zulus, who, of course, the Boers have got a tremendous fear of, the threat of the Zulus is removed by the, the Zulu War of 1879, and the Boers and the British almost turn on each other as a, well, who's going to rule South Africa? And in a, what, at the time, is an absolutely shocking event, the British are defeated in this war, that the culminating battle of the war is the Battle of Majuba Hill, where British redcoats are routed, are actually driven off the hill, uh, Majuba Hill. They're trying to storm up it. They get shot to pieces, retreat back down in panic and rout. And the British government under William Gladstone decides that it's not worth fighting for control of these. What are really poor agrarian states, the Orange Free State and the Trump yeah. No point fighting for it. We'll make a peace treaty instead. And so the Boers win their independence in 1881. But then it's all vastly complicated by gold, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> In some ways, it's a blessing for the for the Boers, but really, it's a curse because just a few years after the war ends, the Boers discover they're sat on the world's biggest gold and diamond reserves, mm. and it triggers a gold rush that's absolutely huge. It dwarfs the California gold rush of eighteen forty nine. It's completely international, so immigrants flood in from Europe and North America. A large amount of immigrants come from Germany and Russia, in particular. Uh, they're all looking to make their fortunes in the mines. They're all looking to prospect in the rivers. Everybody, it's, it turns the Boer states into a kind of Wild West area with this huge flood of rowdy immigrants looking to make a, make a living. Uh, these, the Boers don't like them. There's this sudden rush of immigrants. And on one hand, the Boers need them because they need somebody to work the mines and actually fire up the industrial economy. They're still quite an agrarian um, state otherwise. On the other hand, they don't like them because they're foreign. They don't have the shared language. They don't have the shared outlook. And they don't trust them. And they refer to them as outlanders, outlanders. And they deny them the franchise. They deny them political rights. And they treat them quite badly. You know, you have to carry around a pass and, and you're, you're subjected to some fairly severe South African policing if you're an outlander. Nevertheless, people still flood in. And it makes the population of the, the Transvaal and Free State really explode. And it makes, perversely, these two tiny republics in terms of population, some of the richest in terms of population, percentage population, some of the richest states in the world almost overnight. And the British are not going to sit there and allow two small, relatively weak states to just sit on this enormous amount of mineral wealth. It's inevitable the British are going to try and claim that. Yeah, it is rather, isn't it? So how do we descend then into the much larger Second Boer War? There's, there's, two, there's two trigger incidents. Uh, and the first is... It, between the, over the New Year period of 1895 and 96, the British government 
both at home and in South Africa, with the aid of Cecil Rhodes, oh, imperialist, oh minor, <laughs> you know, absolute ne'er-do-well in South African terms. We cook up this insane idea, which is we're going to get a small force of mercenaries, about 600 men, gunslingers, freebooters, and we're going to launch them into, South, into Boer territory. And they're going to spontaneously trigger an uprising of Uitlanders because the Uitlanders don't have the vote. And the British perceive that the Uitlanders might be quite unhappy about this and really want more political say. And it was hoped that this would trigger this uprising. The Uitlanders would overthrow the Boer governments and then the Uitlanders would go, oh, how wonderful. The British have freed us. Let's make ourselves part of the British Empire. And the British had totally misread the Uitlander mood, but most Uitlanders didn't care. And large numbers of them had actually come from countries which had no democratic institutions anyway, like Russia. And they really didn't care as long as they had a chance to make money in the mines. So these 600 men under a chap called Leander Starr Jameson ride into South Africa achieve absolutely nothing apart from getting rounded up and arrested and humiliated and made to look incredibly stupid and the British government is utterly humiliated. A lot of people in the Boer Republic see this as the first attempted declaration of war and they start really arming themselves, start really preparing for war. And it means that three years later when, so we've gone from 1896 to 1899, when the British are putting a lot of political pressure on the Boers to try and give the Uitlanders the franchise, and the British start massing troops in Natal, ostensibly for defensive reasons, but probably as a, uh, as a provocative move to try and persuade the Boers to do something stupid. By then, given what's happened with the Jameson raid, given that the British have tried to overthrow the government once, the Boers are really worried by October 1899. And they think, well, we can't just sit here. The British are just going to keep massing troops and eventually they'll invade us and we won't be able to stop them. So instead, we're going to summon our army and we're going to try and take the fight to the British and win, win some battles like we did in the first Boer War and then make a peace deal. So the effect of the Jameson raid is it means that three years later, the Boers think they've got no option other than to go to war. And uh, this is what leads to the outbreak of the Second Boer War in October 1899. I think I am now understanding what this is all about because, sorry, Lockie, when he was talking about this battle, I was, I was lost. I had no idea where we were <laughs> at all. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I, I filled, in the, uh, filled in the background there for you. <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, so moving on. So what constitutes as the Boer military? Because I'm guessing it's not a big standing army. It's, it's not a standing army at all. It's a militia system that's called out in times of emergency. So it's based on the, the Boer military, such as it was way back in the 1600s. And what it means is when the Boers issue the call, then every able-bodied man between the ages of 16 and 60 is required to show up for military service. There's no uniform, there's no training, but you are expected to bring your own gun and your own horse. If you don't own a gun or a horse, the Boer government will provide you one. They've spent that gold and diamond money pretty well on getting lots and lots of rifles in and, and really preparing themselves for a, for a war. So you're supposed to turn up as an, a mounted armed man. And for most of the Boers, this isn't a problem. It's still a frontier society. There's no real rail network or no civilian rail network. So everyone gets around on horses anyway. It's still pretty wild, especially in the fringes of, of Boer territory. So having a gun is necessary for your own protection, and it's really useful for hunting game. And if you live in the cities, and this, uh, quite a high portion of Boers are city dwellers, then marksmanship and rifle shooting is a hugely popular sport. One British observer before the war says that rifle shooting in, uh, for competitions in the Boer Republics is the same as billiards in, in the UK. It's that popular in the 1890s. So these, these men who turn up are 
they're tough. They're in many ways, they're, they're frontiersmen or they're miners. They're tough guys. They know the terrain. Many of them are skilled horsemen because that's how you get about. And a, va- a very large proportion of them are good shots as well. And they're very confident with their rifles. So although they're not trained in any way, they are tough and they have good potential as, as, fi- as fighting troops. The only professional arm of the, the Boer military is its artillery branch, the state artillery, which has got a, a small number of modern guns it's imported from Europe. And its officers are kept in uh, the profession full-time, and they're actually trained in France and Germany, as are the gunners. The army's got no uniform, though. Not even the, the state artillery has a uniform. So this is where you get these pictures of these Boers with the hats and just the civilian clothing and so forth. They look like a bit of a rabble. They elect their own officers, which is, uh, to British eyes, is very unusual, but works reasonably well enough for the for the Boers. But they are a tough outfit, very independently minded. And to their mind, of course, they think their their view of the war is this is a war for our independence. So they're highly motivated, and they are meant to be taken seriously. They the, the Boers have been fighting for survival in Africa for years and years and years against hostile elements against hostile tribes against the hostile british and they are they don't fear war they may not be trained in war but they they don't fear war and they're, they're used to the violence of the frontier so these are tough rugged individuals as opposed to the british so the britain hasn't fought a large-scale war since it got its ass handed to it in the crimea has it so yeah that's right lots of waffling about in africa in this region which i guess gains experience and stuff but what is the state of the british army in 1899 it's it's a bundle of contradictions because as you say it hasn't fought a large-scale conventional war since the 1850s and And that that was a disaster because they hadn't changed anything since waterloo so and, and that, that is now so long ago by 1899, it's almost impossible to draw upon for any mm. lessons. And instead, the army's looking at all its colonial campaigns, and it's fought hundreds of these. The, the Boer War is the 226th out of 230 colonial wars fought during the reign of Queen Victoria. So it's, it's fought tons of these wars. But the problem, it's got two related problems. The first is that it's fought these wars all around the globe against an unbelievable array of opponents from Mardists in Sudan, Zulus in South Africa, Maoris in New Zealand, anywhere else you can think where the British army has fought a campaign. And these campaigns are all very unique. They're all very different. The nature of the opposition is different. Geography is different and so on. That's a problem to start with. The second problem is the army really hates sharing lessons between its units. In the army of 1899, if you fought in the colonies, if you fought on the frontier somewhere and you've learned something useful, well, that's your trade secret now. You certainly don't go and share that with the unit that's stationed next to you. And you certainly don't try and feed that back into the army as a whole. Instead, it's what what you've learned. And there's actually this perverse pride in a lot of units that, well, we fought on, say, the northwest frontier of of India. We know what mountain warfare is like. Or we fought in the deserts of Sudan. We know what desert warfare is like. But nobody shares anything. There's no sharing of ideas. And the army at home in the UK is still training in a very old-fashioned way. The, The army maneuvers in 1898 are... Even by the standards of the day, the press are really critical of these manoeuvres and say the tactics being used are just completely out of date. This is going to be a disaster if we try and go into war with anybody reasonably competent. And of course, this means that the army's got all these problems it goes in. It's got its bundle of experience, but it hasn't really processed it. It's got some battalions that are very experienced and have got useful experience fighting Afghans on the northwest frontier, so, but they don't tell anybody else how to do it. 
And the rest of the army is trained on, on pretty old-fashioned lines. So close order, close control, volley fire, no entrenchment, no field craft, don't take cover. It's a very old-fashioned style of, of war. In the army's defense, it's worked against opponents like the Zulus and the Mardists who want to rush into close combat. Standing firm and delivering volleys against opponents like that works. But if you're going to war against an enemy like the Boers, good rifle shots, very mobile, very crafty, know the terrain, it's a recipe for disaster. Why do things go so badly wrong for the British in the first months of the war? It's to do with the uh, two things. The first is underestimating the Boers. Weirdly, given that the British have lost a war to the Boers in the 1880s, the British greatly underestimate the Boers 20 years later and think that, well, the Boers aren't as good as they were 20 years earlier. We don't really have anything to worry about. They're going to just be a rough mob and they'll take one serious battlefield defeat and then they'll fall to pieces. Of course, it's completely wrong. So the army's not well prepared psychologically. And the initial deployment of the, of the army in South Africa is all wrong. It's, it's scattered around. It's not in positions where it can support each other. And they're not expecting the Boers to invade with such ferocity as they do. And this means that the Boers invade Natal, or what's now KwaZulu-Natal in October, drive the British back, drive the British back to the town of Ladysmith, where most of the British Army's supplies are. The British sally out of this town and try and defeat the Boers in battle. They lose the battle, the Battle of Ladysmith on the 31st of October. They're driven back into the town. And... The Boers encircle the town and they encircle the army in it. And that is the main British army in South Africa is encircled and in danger of being starved out within about three weeks of the war breaking out. And that was never part of the British plan. And it means that the all further British plans are derailed because most of the British army is now being besieged and that's a serious problem. So when the, uh, the new forces arrive, the Britain sends forces to South Africa as soon as the war breaks out. They were originally meant to invade territory they can't do that instead they've got to march to the relief of the besieged towns and also just stop the Boers carrying out an invasion of British territory these armies then they split up they head into battle to try and relieve these towns try and secure British territory but because of the problems I've just discussed about poor training hubris um underestimating the Boers each of these armies walks into trouble and in the space of a single week in December 1899 all of Britain's advancing armies get defeated in in a period that's known as Black Week and the common factor in these defeats is bad reconnaissance walking into entrenched Boers without proper artillery preparation and getting shot to pieces and these three armies do this separately in, in different fashions with disastrous results and so by the end of December 1899 Britain's armies have been defeated on every front in South Africa. It's not great, is it? But um, why do the Boers, they don't capitalise on this absolute mess, do they? They don't. And this is one of the great what-ifs about the Boer War. Because by mid, well, mid-December, not even the end of December, by mid-December 1899, the British armies have all been defeated. The main British army in South Africa is still trapped in Ladysmith and is slowly being starved out. And there's a, there's a war council for the Boers saying, well, what do we do next? We've won all these battles. We're in control of the war. What do we do? And the younger Boer leaders say, well, we should march on Durban, which is the biggest port on the east coast of Africa. We should, we should mark, march on Durban and either capture it or disrupt it in some way so the British can't land reinforcements there. 
The older Boer leaders, though, who are veterans of the first Boer War, they, they're, they're really reluctant about this. They worry that if the Boers attack the British too hard, then the British will, will redouble their efforts. It's the wrong move because the British are going to redouble their efforts anyway. And so there's this opportunity where the, the Boers more or less have South Africa to themselves and there's a possibility of inciting an Afrikaner uprising in the Cape. There's still a lot of Afrikaners living in the Cape, capturing Durban, really turning the war against the British. But the older officers who are all the senior commanders, they, they, they won't endorse it. They turn it down. And so the Boers miss this, this golden opportunity, a window of perhaps a month or six weeks where they are the masters of South Africa and can do what they want. And instead, they just sit in their positions and they, they allow the initiative to slip away from them. And it's, it probably costs them the war. Question. How do the British turn the tide of war in early 1900? So... My man it, comes in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The man, there's the short man comes in. Uh, the which, little which field marshal. This what? is Lord, Lord, or field marshal Lord Roberts. Yeah, um, and in tow, Pete in Doyle's t- going, yeah! In, <laughs> yeah, KFK, right Kitchener, <laughs> uh, uh, arrived to Basically, take the army. Daddy comes in, doesn't he? He and does. he brings with him his eldest spawn, who <laughs> is, yeah, Daddy and his heir come in and sort it out. And this is, I think, just this commenting about Robertson Kitchener, it's a, indicative of how serious that the yeah. British are taking this. They are sending their two most famous soldiers, the icons of the military empire, are called up and sent to sort this situation out. And, of course, for Roberts, it's, it's really quite it's a difficult personal time because his only son has been killed at the Battle of Colenso. So that's what um, Lockie was talking about, Alina. So the guy in charge now, Daddy... His son has been killed in this mess. Ah, oh, okay. Okay, I'm kind of putting the pieces together a little bit now. That's good. Um, so they arrive, and they, are, they don't just arrive. So the most famous soldiers of the empire are sent out, and they don't just arrive on their own. They arrive with huge reinforcements, absolutely huge, and not just British reinforcements, but also reinforcements from around the empire because a call has gone out for volunteers, and it's been answered by Canada Australia, New Zealand, and of course, British speaking or English speaking South Africa as well. They've all raised their own units. There's also been this big response in the UK itself, a surge of volunteerism. In some ways, Britain's first mass volunteer army is formed and it goes out to South Africa. And this huge increase in, in numbers really is, is a worry for the Boers. They, they, they've already defeated one incoming uh, wave of relief expeditions, but this is something else. And Roberts turns up and he's got a new plan as well. He's got improved tactics. He issues new tactical guidelines for the army, which are much better than what the army's been using. And his big idea is he's going to break free from the rail lines, which the armies have had to use before. He's going to go out into the country, outflank the Boers, outmaneuver them with masses of cavalry and mounted infantry and force them to uh, to their knees. And it works. It works. The, the Boers can't stop this these new invasions Roberts outmaneuvers them, traps them at a place called Paderberg, or traps a large portion of the Boer army at Paderberg, encircles it and forces it to surrender, and then marches into the Boer states. He captures Orange Free State's capital in March, and he captures Transvaal's capital in June. And the turnaround from that disastrous December of 1899 to controlling both capitals in six months, between January and June 1900, is testament, I think, to the success of Roberts' campaign. 
it helps that he's got a huge number of reinforcements as well. That's always an advantage. But he he's definitely worked out the way to beat the boards and outmaneuver them. Or so he thinks. The one thing that Roberts doesn't do is really destroy the Boer armies. He, he outmaneuvers them and disperses them. And he captures the capitals and he takes control of, of Boer territory, which is his what he's been ordered to do, of course. But one thing that does miss out or is slightly awkward um, is that the Boer armies haven't been dispersed. So, the British capture uh, Blomfontein in March, Pretoria in, 19, in July, and occupy almost all of the Boer republics by August. Why doesn't the war end there? It's to do with the fact that the Boers refuse to let it end. And in March 1900, the Boers actually have a crisis meeting near Blomfontein and a place called Kronstadt, and they try and decide what their war strategy is going to be now. And even at that early stage, they've just lost a, an army at Paderberg. That's the one that's been encircled. They're suffering. They're being pushed back. They're suffering some defeat. They have this meeting at Kronstadt, and they say, well, how are we going to win the war? How can we continue this war? It's clear that the, the British have got an enormous uh, weight of men and material. And they decide there that the best thing they can do is start to disperse their units and start to try and carry out a guerrilla war. As Roberts was advancing, some Boer units got stuck behind British lines. They just got outmaneuvered and they couldn't retreat in time. But rather than surrendering, a lot of these Boer units decided to become saboteurs and start carrying out raids and start attacking the British supply lines. And some of these raids could be incredibly effective, capturing huge amounts of supplies, torching uh, railway, uh, railways, tearing them up, destroying trains and so on. And so at Krimstad, the, the Boer leadership decides that this is... This may work, and if the war can be dragged out through these, these raids and these saboteur actions, these guerrilla actions, then maybe eventually the British will just get sick of it and some sort of peace deal will be made. And it's a recognition the Boers can't stop the, um, the oncoming British army. It's too big, but they can possibly um, then fight a war of the flea and just nibble the British to death once the British try and occupy the South African republics. And so the decision's made at March. The Boer armies still fight right up until August, but they're increasingly becoming dispersed as they get broken in small pieces. But then those, those component pieces keep fighting. And it's here that the, the name for a Boer military unit, which has no significance whatsoever in Afrikaans, but has a lot of significance in British, becomes apparent. Boers call their military units a commando. It's roughly equivalent to just saying to a, to, in British, a unit or a company or a battalion. It doesn't have any particular um, uh, weight to it. But of course, in the English language, commando, we apply with special forces and raiders. And that's quite deliberate because Winston Churchill chose that word for Britain's special forces in 1940 when he founded the commandos. And he was hearkening back to the type of raiders, saboteurs, and just very tough opponents that he'd experienced fighting against in 1900. And these Boer guerrillas, the commandos, start a protracted guerrilla campaign behind British lines and also moving into British colonies that becomes extremely violent and um, unpleasant very quickly. Can I, before we move on to that, can I ask you to segue, because I love this story so much, about Churchill and his being captured in the Boer War? Oh, absolutely. So Winston Churchill... I mean, I'm biased because uh, my, in fact, we've got a shared sort of thing here because I was named, my name Spencer is actually, I was named after Winston's yeah. middle name. And of course you've got Churchill. So all we need is somebody on the show now called Winston and we could actually Granddad, create, yeah. a, create You can change a, a, my name. 
there we go. So let's let's do that. Then we let's can call it the it. WSC show, and uh, we'll make a fortune. But <laughs> Winston, uh, absolutely great. And of all the many stories associated with Churchill, I think this is one of the most fun. Yeah, this but is he, why I've asked for it because Alina doesn't know this. She has no clue what you're about to say. Oh, you'll enjoy this. So Winston's a journalist. He's actually left the army just before the Boer War breaks out. Boer War breaks out, and he's the world's most highly paid uh, war correspondent. So he goes out to South Africa. And he arrives in November, just as the Battle of Ladysmith's finished, and the main British army is trapped in Ladysmith. So there's not a lot going on at this stage, that the British army is mustering, but there's no real action. And Churchill's really bored, and he's desperate to have something going on. He wants to see some action, he wants a, a whiff of gun smoke. So he persuades uh, a chap, Alma Haldane, his later commands in the First World War, and his governor of Iraq, he persuades him to take an armoured train, which is not a very formidable weapon, it has to be said. It's just a, a, a train with some armour plate bolted on it and some open-top carriages which soldiers can operate in. It persuades, it persuades Haldane to take this train out into bore-controlled bore territory down the train lines, just looking for trouble. It's, it's a hair, <laughs> it is really harebrained. And oh, it's worse than Antwerp in 1914, isn't it? It is insane. And in fact, when there's uh, an inquiry into the loss of this train after it, it's lost, there's a spoiler, after it's captured, the, uh, the commander in charge, uh, Reba's Bullet, says it's inconceivable stupidity that this train ever just went sailing off into Boer territory. It was never going to end well. So the train goes off into Boer territory. Winston's really excited because he sees some Boer scouts and thinks, oh, I've seen some Boers. Of course, these Boers see the train and say, let's ambush this train. And they derail it. They put a rock across the, um, rock across the rails. They force the train to increase speed by shooting at it. And the train rounds a corner and just crashes into this rock, derails itself crisis the boards ambush the train churchill nearly gets killed because they're trying to clear the track so the engine can move off a guy working next to churchill has his arm blown off by an artillery blast and an artillery shell buries itself at churchill's feet but fortunately doesn't detonate if i'd gone off uh, there wouldn't be any more winston they manage to clear the tracks and the engine is able to move off they load the wounded onto the engine and try and get away but the train driver he's been badly wounded his train's on fire so he's panicking he increases the speed he rockets away and he leaves winston and the soldiers who are on board the train behind soldiers all get rounded up winston thinks i'm not having any of this he goes running down the train track trying to catch the train <laughs> he can't make it um some boars run after him and start shooting at him he dives into a ditch he starts running along the ditch the boars follow him and another boar comes riding round to cut off his retreat. And at this point, Winston thinks, well, I'm not going to be a prisoner. I'm going to sell my life dearly. Unfortunately for the rest of, of history, um, he doesn't get killed here. And the only reason he doesn't get killed is he goes to draw his pistol, which he has in a, um, a waist holster. And he realizes he's left his pistol on the train engine. He's put it down while he's been helping to load the wounded and the gun's driven off. So he doesn't have a gun. <laughs> so he can't pull a gun on the boards, which probably saved his life because I'm sure they'd have shot him dead. So he gets captured, much to his dismay. He ends up in prison, completely fed up. I mean, he's losing his mind in prison. He's, he's only 24, but he's got this strange idea at the time. He won't live until he's 40. So he's, he's a man in a hurry. He has his birthday in prison, which really sticks in his craw. And he decides he's going to escape. So him and Haldane hatch a plan to escape, where they're going to get over the wall at night, and then they're going to escape into Pretoria, catch a train heading to Portuguese East Africa. Various misadventures then occur, and for reasons that are still obscure, Churchill goes over the wall and gets in some bushes, but Haldane can't follow him. It seems that the guards change cycle, and Churchill has to go off on his own. Unhelpfully for Churchill, Haldane's got the map, 
and the compass and most of the supplies and they don't come over the wall with him so Churchill sets off into Pretoria with some money some British money some chocolate and a boar hat which he's managed to pilfer from the uh, the prison camp chaplain so he's not really well equipped he doesn't speak a word of Afrikaans but that's never going to discourage Churchill so he wanders through Pretoria for about three hours he gets to the train station he works out that the train's going east he gets aboard it and off he heads into the night. Now it's December, so it's the height of the South African summer. It's baking hot, and he's got no water. He's driving through the, the middle of nowhere uh, outside Pretoria, and he's desperate for a drink. And he looks out the, the carriage, and he sees he's passing through some wetlands. So he jumps off a train. I mean, that's always dangerous. Jumps off a train in the middle of the night, manages to slake his thirst to these wetlands, but the train disappears, and he's in the middle of nowhere. He uses the stars to navigate himself east for about 20 miles, but he's got no supplies, no water, no map. No, no, nothing. So he comes <laughs> to this mining town and he's, he's just desperate. And it, all he's got is some money. And he thinks, well, maybe I'll bribe somebody. So he goes up to a, a house. He knocks on the door and calls, for, asks for help. And somebody on the other side answers him in Afrikaans. So Church thinks, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble here. Church responds in English. And the door flies open. And it's an Englishman called John Howard, who happened to have been working in South Africa when the war broke out and sort of got stuck there, even though he's English. And he bundles Churchill in and explains to him that, that he is the only Englishman within 20 miles of this, of this region. Nobody else in the town is English. If Churchill had knocked on those doors, he'd probably been handed over to the authorities. So absolutely incredible luck. He's found the only Englishman for about 20 miles and he's happened to knock on his door. So Howard hides him for several days. He hides him in a mine shaft. The Boers come looking for him, Boer police try and find him. There's... Uh, there's a strong uh, belief that he there was a dead or alive poster issued for him. Some people have disputed that, but Churchill never had reason to doubt it. But the Boers managed to miss him. Then Howard manages to smuggle Churchill onto a train heading to East Africa. Churchill makes it to the, the then capital of East Africa, of course, Angola now, makes it there. And even at the 11th hour, there's a chance he's going to get caught because he's very, very unpopular with the Boers. And there's lots of Boers live in Portuguese East Africa. So he makes it to the British embassy and the British embassy has to summon armed Britons in Portuguese East Africa to come and defend the building just in case the Boers storm it. But fortunately for Churchill, he gets away with it. He's not caught. He's able to ship himself back to Durban just in time for Christmas. And in doing so becomes probably the most famous journalist in the world ever at this stage. But to say he rode the whole thing by the seat of his pants is just an understatement. And he should never have been captured to start with. The, the, taking this armoured train off into the middle of hostile territory was completely bananas. And in some ways he deserved what he got. But the fact he got away with it, with this incredible escape, which was about a 320-mile escape overall, I, I you know, it reminds it's me of Napoleon's... Napoleon's dictum, the first thing you look for in somebody is, are they lucky? And Churchill yeah. was definitely lucky. And does that, you could argue to a certain extent, can't you, that it's that fame that gets him his first parliamentary seat? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it makes him, it makes him a legend yeah. within Britain. And of course, the timing, again, look, at, look for Churchill. It, the timing's perfect because it's December. There's no good news for the British at all in South Africa. It's all defeats and it's all casualties and there's nothing good happening. And then suddenly you've got this incredible escape this prison breakout, which are just as popular in the Boer War as they would be in the Second World War in terms of stories and, and myths and legends. And it makes Churchill he, the most famous man ever because he's, he's giving the British some good news. And of course, he can write his own escape story because he's a journalist. And uh, he's a great writer. And there's a lot of humour in his, in his story. He's not, yes, he's arrogant. Of course, he's arrogant. But it's always leavened with some humour and some 
some humility in it. And it's just a great story. It and is. Alina, are you huge. impressed? I'm sitting here at the edge at the seat of my pants going, <laughs> oh my God, did he seriously just pull this shit off? He did, but I do have to clarify because I know how your brain works, that you've pictured this whole scenario of a middle-aged fat man with a cigar in a suit doing this. He's yes. young at this point. He's young and thin at this point and quite good looking. Yeah, that, that's exactly how I saw him. This old yeah. geezer, balding, <laughs> on his way, running, and when he's trying to run, he's like, "Oh, oh. <laughs> no, you know, no, young, virile, fit, Winston." Absolutely, and he was yeah. he even was growing a pencil moustache at the time, so he looks a bit like a movie star from the 1930s. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I, I love it. Thank you so much for that. Um, but we were, weren't we? So we've talked about, we got to the Boa Commandos and why they're so effective as guerrilla fighters. Why is that? And it's, be, it's because it's their patch, isn't it? It certainly is. They know this terrain. They know the countryside. They're, yeah, the rugged individualists. They can, they're self-sufficient. They understand what you can hunt, what you can, where you can eat and drink, what you can take from the veldt and what you can't. And they're mounted on native ponies. Well, we, the British call them ponies. The Boers call them horses. They're, they're small horses, essentially, that are very hardy. They're perfectly adapted for this type of environment. The Boers are – so they know the terrain. They're fighting for what they think is their freedom, so they're still highly motivated. They're also – and this is something that I think tends to get lost a little bit in the romance of the commando and the guerrilla fighter is they're ruthless as well. They know when to strike – um, they don't take chances that they think they, that are going to cost them casualties. They pick on the weakest targets, British targets behind the lines. They like descending on poorly defended supply depots and supply trains and so on. And they're also quite prepared to um, brutalize the locals in return for food and, and, um, and support. So they are, they are ruthlessly efficient and they, they're so hard to catch because, of course, they're all mounted. So the British lumbering after them with marching columns and riding on horses that have come straight from Britain and aren't adapted for South Africa, they can't catch them. The boars are just too mobile. They're, they're too speedy. The boars emerge from the wilderness, will strike some isolated post or uh, column or something similar, and then they'll disappear back into the wilderness. And the British will go chasing after them in what a, a series of these events called sweeps, where the army tries to trawl the countryside. And it's just, it's like a giant trying to catch a mouse. It, it's, the, the giant's lumbering around, he, he can't lay hands on it, and the mouse escapes and gets behind him and then attacks him from behind. And 
there's the, the British get incredibly frustrated trying to track down these really mobile fighters. And of course, as the longer the war goes on, certainly for a time, the Boers actually become more and more efficient at commando raiding. They, they learn techniques, they acquire better equipment, particularly dynamite, which they steal from mines. Dynamite, great for just demolishing buildings and so on. So they, even, they actually get better at it. They sort of reach a peak perhaps in uh, late 1900. Whereas the British are just lumbering around. I, it's like trying to catch hold of jelly and they can't do it. So, there, I mean, there is a response and it does include something that's going to be really interesting for you, Alina. Uh, how do the British try and tackle this without, let's, let's not get you hate mail. <laughs> well, it's almost impossible to, to talk about this aspect of the Boer War without getting some hate mail. And mm. As I, I think I mentioned to you before, what fascinates me about the hate mail I get about this is I get it both from South Africans who say I've got a Eurocentric view or I'm downplaying British or, or various other Christians. And I get it also from uh, British people who claim that I am a, um, I'm anti-British and that uh, you know, I'm biased against these sort of things. And I'm not. I'm just trying to explain a so really talking, unpleasant period of history. Oh, yeah, we're talking concentration camps, aren't we? We are, but yes. I think we're talking about it with most people coming at it, assuming that they are a mirror and the intent was a mirror of World War II. And that really isn't the case, is it? Uh, absolutely correct. The, the concentration camp system that the British Institute, starting from really around the spring of 1900 and then, then expanding as the, the war goes on until 1902, is completely different from that which we associate with Nazis in 1930s and 40s. The intention's totally different. And when the British actually start these camps, they're initially for refugees, Boer refugees, yeah. who have lost their homes. Some of them have already laid down their arms and they're, they're worried that they're going to be attacked by Boer commandos. And they, so they, they actually come into British lines. The British can't house them, so they build concentration camps. And- so my thing is, so Kitchener, to me, I, it's done with good intentions isn't it to protect people but it's hideously implemented absolutely right so it starts out as a way of of housing refugees and not just african refugees but also black refugees who've been rendered homeless by the war but slowly but surely this system starts to creak under its strains it's not intended to to kill or even really brutalize Uh, it's not a punishment camp it's it's meant to be a a refugee a housing camp but two things start to, to go wrong the first is the camps get flooded and one of the reasons they get flooded is the british decision that because the boers won't lay down their arms the best way to force them to surrender is just to start destroying Boer villages and Boer towns that are felt to be supplying the commandos. And you see echoes of Vietnam here. Um, and this, this is known as the farm burning policy. It's controversial at the time because, of course, a lot of these people living out, South Africans living out on the edges of the society, aren't really connected to the Boer commandos, but the British destroy their farms and their towns anyway. And the initial intention of the British is, well, we'll throw women and children out into women, children and old men out into the wilderness and the Boers will then come in and because they'll want to surrender to protect their women folk but in fact it just enrages the commandos they fight harder and it leaves lots of women and children wandering around um, a very inhospitable region and so these then refugees that the British have created then get brought into the camps and immediately problems start to emerge because on one hand you've got 
uh, refugees who were there early in the campaign who've actually surrendered to the British and are looking for protection from the Boers. And suddenly you're bringing in Boer civilians who hate the British, who've had their farms destroyed and their husbands, fathers, brothers, sons may still be fighting with the commandos. So that immediately makes the camps a very hostile place amongst the, uh, the population. The other problem is by expanding the number of people in the camps, it reveals how badly organized and badly resourced these camps are. The British have never really made them scalable. They haven't planned for an expansion of them. And they're quite often placed in inefficient places. So people without really any understanding of South Africa have built them close to rivers. Well, that's well-intentioned. You've got water, but you've also got all sorts of mosquitoes, flies, all sorts of waterborne insects that spread disease. And as these camps expand, the sanitary arrangements are terrible. Medical care is bad. And just like you have in any kind of mass camp, you get disease outbreaks and epidemics, particularly some of the, the those classic Victorian diseases, two of the worst that go through the camps are measles and whooping cough, which the Boers don't have much immunity to, rages through the camps alongside with typhus and cholera and things like this. And these disease outbreaks and epidemics are poorly responded to by the British as well. The camps don't have enough medical staff. The medical staff they do have aren't good enough, uh, don't have the resources. And so the Boers just fall back on their homespun remedies, which of course are frontier medicine and and don't really work. And it's got all the makings of a humanitarian disaster that escalates the longer the war goes on and the more refugees pour into these camps. And it would have potentially gone on like this, just getting worse and worse and worse, had it not been for intrepid liberal journalist, Emily Hobhouse, who hearing rumours about these camps and about how badly they were run, she went out into South Africa to investigate, much to the horror of the British Army authorities, it must be said, because one, she was a woman, and two, she was going to really stick her nose into this and and reveal the truth. And her expose of the conditions of camps was sensational within the UK and the empire and indeed Europe as a whole. And it led to a famous incident in Parliament where the Liberal leader, Campbell Bannerman, accused the government of carrying out the war through methods of barbarism. Um, And from that point, from Hophouse's report, the concentration camp system was reformed somewhat. There was more resources for it and so on. Um, It was still a deeply unpleasant place to be. There were still disease outbreaks. But there was more, from that point, there was more emphasis on the, the idea of it as a refugee camp and as a place, a temporary place to stay. As I as we've just said, these were not punishment camps and they were not designed to kill or um, inflict cruelties. In fact, one of the few success stories in the concentration camp system was the schooling system that was set up there by uh, intrepid British um, educators. And they had this idea that all the, all the children in the concentration camp needed an education because, of course, the war was disrupting it. And they set up a school system there that was extremely popular. And this is where the complexity, I think, of the, the concentration camp experience comes in because it's easy to just view them as a mitigated horror. And this is not to downplay how unpleasant they were. But on the other hand, there was also some opportunities here that the Boers actually took advantage of. So the school system, for example, was a great success. And well over 10,000 Boer children enrolled in these concentration camp schools and received an education in English um, that was equivalent to what a, a British child in the UK would have. And There was, of course, an imperialist idea behind this education. It would make the children pro-British and pro-imperialist. But nevertheless, it it was earnestly intentioned, too, to just try and improve the lot of of Boer children and and give the Boer civilians an indication that 
yeah, the future didn't have to be awful. So there's always these contrasts within the concentration camp system. As you said, it's really important to see these in the context of their time and not in the context of the 1930s and 40s when the camps were very different indeed. Alina, is that news to you? No, it's not. I knew yeah. about the concentration camps. Um, it's, a, it's a very silly room. We're actually going to cover this with uh, Nicholas Wachmann in mm. a couple of weeks with the, with the idea that the Germans got this idea because it was all the British. Mm. You know, we're going to dispel that myth because it is, I mean, wh- where were the beatings? Where was the cruelty? Um, it was literally a prison within a prison, the, con- the German concentration camp system. But mm. this mm. was, for me, misorganization, and just people not doing their job properly, more or less, mm. at the end of the day. Yeah, Absolutely. it's ineptitude, uh, like horrific and unforgivable ineptitude. Yes. Um, but it is, it's not done with an intent to eradicate anybody, is it? And mm. to punish. There's no punishment in there. Mm. Uh, that's true. It's, it's, a, it's a tragic example of don't necessarily attribute to malice what can also be attributed to incompetence. And these are appallingly run and they're appallingly organised. And the, the human cost is terrible. You know, well over 20,000 poor women and children die in these camps over the two years. Probably a similar number of black Africans, because the separate camps for black Africans also die, all, usually of disease epidemics. And there's certainly there's an element of callousness about these casualties in the British authorities. But they're not into, the camps were never created with the idea of carrying out a genocide or carrying out an eradication, as you say. They are designed with a certain amount of good intention. I use that phrase very yeah. advisedly. Very I mean, advisedly. It's because Kitchener wants to go scorched earth, isn't it? Mm. And I think that the, the criticism there, and quite rightly, is that scorched earth itself is an inhumane, indiscriminate approach. Mm. And Kitchener's determined to do it because he believes it will get results. And in military terms, it does. It does eventually start to produce results, but it also creates refugees. And a valid criticism that's made of Kitchener at the time is through the extension of this farm burning scorched earth policy, he's created a refugee crisis, but he's not created the system to handle the refugee crisis. And certainly Kitchener is a very much a military minded man. He doesn't take a lot of interest in what's going on in the concentration camps. That's somebody else's department. And he's criticized for it in parliament, of course, Mm. um, when it happens. But he's a military commander. And his view is that the best way to end the suffering in the camps is to end the war, even if those the methods being used to end the war are going to make the camps worse. And so there is a, a sort of real tragedy about all this. But I think it's wrong to... Um, conflate Nazi concentration camps with British concentration camps. The, the term's so evocative and it means so much now, given yeah. the legacy of the Second World War. It can be hard to look at the war camps in that way, but it's necessary to, to really understand what was going on. You just touched on it there. Before we round the war off and, and say how it ended, what was the experience of black Africans? This is one of the understated and understudied stories of the South African war. People, some very good historians have done some work on it, but it's it's so difficult to get a grip on because of the lack of written records or the comparative lack of, of written records. And for the black African population, this war was really a series of unmitigated tragedies. At the start of the war, both the British and the Boers were really keen to keep this war, in their terms, a white man's war. They didn't want to introduce a racial element into the war. The British didn't want to do it because they thought that would enrage the Boers uh, and make them fight that much harder. And the Boers didn't want to do it because they were worried that it might provoke some sort of wider African uprising, either against them or against the British. 
So the idea was to almost impose a color bar on the wall. But from the very opening shots, that color bar was imaginary. The Boers used uh, lots and lots of black African labor, quite a lot of it impressed, so at gunpoint, effectively, to dig their trenches and carry out their military engineering. And the British used lots and lots of black Africans as drivers, scouts, and also to carry out uh, manual labor and heavy work without, incidentally, ever declaring the existence of these of these soldiers. So there were black soldiers, certainly in uniform in the, in the British army. Uh, and they were an unspoken, but important part of the force. Perhaps as many as 15,000 black Africans served with the British forces in some way as scouts, drivers, or as laborers or carriers. The wider experience though is quite sad and, and quite tragic because the blacks who lived within the Boer territory had been poorly treated for, for decades. The Boers still operated a, a peculiar form of indentured servitude whereby Africans could sell children to the Boers and have them raised by the Boers, but in return for their labour. And there was a lot of unpleasant and, and strange arrangements there. With the occupation of the, of the Boer republics, a lot of black Africans actually thought that their lives were going to improve. And there was a sort of a bit of a jubilant mood initially. They thought they were going to get citizen rights and so on. Um, of course, that was somewhat illusionary. And in fact, black Africans in the, uh, the guerrilla phase of the war suffered a lot. Boer commandos often pillaged black African villages for supplies uh, and to take particularly food and horses from them. The British sweeps often destroyed black African villages to prevent them being destroyed by the Boers. And I think here we see an echo of that Vietnam line to save the village it was necessary to destroy it which caused the, the, the local population to have to go into black concentration camps. And the entire experience was miserable. The economy of, of the area was very disrupted. The constant toing and froing of soldiers and commandos was a risk, especially the commandos. And at the end of the war, of course, any hope that the, the black population would receive the franchise and would receive citizen rights uh, equivalent to a white was struck off in the final peace treaty. And this it didn't create apartheid, but it certainly laid a foundation for the policy that would become apartheid by separating white and black. In terms of, of losses for the black population, nobody's ever accurately calculated them. But concentration camp losses for black civilians, probably in the region of 25,000 to 30,000 civilians died in those camps. And in terms of um, people in uniform and so on being killed, we don't have accurate figures. We know, for example, of at least one or two examples where captured black soldiers were shot by the Boers. Um, others examples where this is rumoured. And at the end of the war, if you'd served with the British Army, you didn't receive any particularly preferential treatment. And if you then had to go back to a Boer area as a former black soldier, you were quite likely to be driven out by the Boers if they found this out. So in a way that the, the black African experience was to really suffer during this war. And uh, it, it's a it's a tragedy, I think, for the the, the black experience that's only fairly recently, only really since the 1980s has begun to be begun to be told. And there's still a lot of work to be done in that direction. And there's some really good oral historians have done work on this, but there's still so much more to be done. And we forget, I think, that how that the vast majority of the population in the war zone was in fact black rather than white. And you can imagine that this is not, if you're living there, if you're a local living there, it's not your war and yet you're caught up in it as the armies and the commandos march past, raid you. And you may end up in a camp just by the, the, the misfortune of having to live in a war zone. And it's a, it's a real tragedy. Can you tell us, how does the war finally come to an end? It goes back to the 
topic we've just been discussing about scorched earth and uh, camps and Lord Kitchener's ferocious prosecution of the war. And, and by 1901, the, the war commandos who are still operating out in the field, they're getting tired that they're, the war clearly isn't going to, going to end anytime soon. Their hopes that European states, France and Germany, might intervene in the war, it's just a fantasy. It's not going to happen. And the Boers actually put out some peace feelers to the British, but the conditions the, the Boers want are too high. Uh, the British are determined to absorb these two states, and so the Boers, the Boers point, don't want that. They want at least semi-independent. So peace talks break down. And uh, just to give you a flavour of, of just how vicious the war is at this time, uh, unfortunate for certain Boers who are selected by the British to go into Boer commandos to, to bring these peace treaties or peace proposals to them. And it's a form of psychological warfare. These are Boers who are perhaps live in British territory or maybe have been captured by the British at some point who are then turned. And the idea is they'll join Boer commandos and they'll just talk about the ideas of peace. And they'll, they'll just try and spread the idea that it might be good to take, make peace. But in most cases, these guys who go out to join the commandos, these double agents, if you will, they get found out, they get, um, in, in many cases, they get flogged, and in many other cases, they get shot. So it, that doesn't work, and it shows, I think, just how vicious the war is by 1901. But by 1902, a year on from this, the situation with the commanders has just got worse. They're even more ragged. They're really struggling to maintain supplies. They are struggling to draw supplies from the surrounding countryside, which has just been burned flat. And Crucially as well, the British have built this system called the blockhouse system, which are these corrugated and earthen miniature pillboxes which sit along rivers and sit along railway lines. And the British built about 8,000 of these across the main war zone of South Africa. And they serve as a sort of proto-trench or a proto-barrier. These, these small little garrisons linked together with, with barbed wire stop the Boers crossing river and rail lines easily. The Boers will have to fight to get across them. And this is a huge factor because it stops the Boers roaming around as freely as they have been done. And in combination with the fact there's just no food left, there's no ammunition left, there's, it's really hard for the Boers to keep themselves supplied. The Boers realised by uh, the, the spring of 1902, spring in Northern Hemisphere terms of 1902, this war just can't go on. And by April 1902, they're willing to, to start to make a, or consider at least, peace deals. Um, talks are held between Kitchener and the surviving Boer commando leaders that ultimately lead to peace finally being made uh, by the middle of 1902. So it's a combination of just the relentless British pressure, military pressure from Kitchener that's been brought to bear on the Boers and just growing exhaustion of them. Fewer and fewer of them left, and the ones that are left have got very little in the way of supplies or military equipment left. And so by the end of May, the peace treaty is finally signed. What is the legacy of this war? That's, that's this one is of like a whole other hour-long podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is, uh, it's, it's such a complicated legacy. This is something you work on a lot. You have a fantastic book. If people have been excited by it, um, Spencer talking about this, he has a, fast, a fantastic book that bridges from the Boer War to the 1914 and shows you how we got from one to the beginning of World War One, don't you? I do, yes. From, from, originally enough entitled From Boer War to World War and uh, available wherever good books are sold. So not too late to get your copy wherever you may be. It, the legacy of the war, there's so many. And uh, I'm just going for, for reasons of... A time because I've twisted your ears over this for I have no idea how long and you've borne it all with great fortitude. I'm going to give you three major legacies. 
The first is the one that I've written the most about, and that's the influence on the British Army and how the British Army changes after the Boer War. Because the Boer War has been a horrible experience for the British Army. It's, it's won, but the, the, it's almost, I've won, but at what cost? Yeah. Casualties are heavy. The army's been criticised at home and abroad. Loads of officers have been sacked or sent home. It's not, been a, it's not been a clean victory in any way, shape or form. And the army undergoes what I, I think is probably the most radical period of transformation between 1902 and 1914 the army has ever had. Tactical reform, organisational reform, complete reorganisation of the second line forces leading to the creation of the territorials. Just a remarkable period of reform. And so without that period of reform, I don't think the British army survives at all in 1914. I think it's just trampled by the oncoming Germans in in that year. And this led to a comment that was made by a British officer after the First World War, which was that Paul Kruger, who was the president of the Transvaal, who'd made the decision to declare war in 1899, Paul Kruger was the best friend the British army ever had. And it might not have seemed like that in 1899, but the results of the reforms that follow probably were essential for eventual British success in the First World War. The the other legacy is Britain itself and the experience of the the Boer War and the experience in particular of the poor physical state of recruits that arrive to to, to try and volunteer during that wave of volunteerism in 1900. You've got these these guys, very earnest, but they've got terrible health conditions. They're poorly fed and they're tiny. Uh, The British actually reduced their height regulation from five foot three to five foot in 1900, just so they can scoop up some of these smaller chaps. The, the, the shocking revelation of how bad the health is of the urban working class leads to this movement called national efficiency. And it's a peculiar movement. It's, it manages to bridge both a right and left wing divide in a desire to improve the condition of, of the British working class. The left, of course, wants it largely for moral reasons. It's just morally right that people should have better health and better conditions. And the right wants it because they think it will make Britain a more effective, great power. It will lead to British military improvements and so on. And so you've got this really uh, quite vigorous movement called national efficiency, which contributes to that very reformist liberal government, which holds um, holds power in the latter half of the Edwardian period, which introduces the first welfare reforms, what you might call a social security state. And I think it's possible those reforms might have come without the Boer War. I think they're a huge legacy within British political history. Without the the movement of for national efficiency, you wouldn't have seen such a reformist government at that time, I don't think. And the final legacy, of course, is South Africa itself, where to this day, the Boer War has a very bitter legacy. And I know we've joked about hate mail and so on, but um, and anybody, as you know, ladies, anybody with a public history profile will at some point attract some sort of hate mail or hate mm-hmm. tweets. We all get them. Um, I can hand on heart say some of the, the, the hate tweets I've had about particularly when I've spoken about concentration camps from people who are angered by this, boggle the mind. And I think it shows just how deep the legacy runs. I've been to conferences in South Africa where I've heard similar views expressed in person uh, about the, the, the cost of this. And it is still a very sensitive, very sensitive subject. And South African history itself is sensitive. It's so complicated. It's so nuanced. In the short term for South Africa, the Boer War is an economic disaster. South Africa recovers economically relatively quickly, and of course it contributes in in both world wars. But as I mentioned to you, although the the peace that ends the Boer War doesn't create apartheid, it's by no means inevitable apartheid will follow. It lays a foundation stone by acknowledging the different citizen rights of white and black 
that will eventually lead to apartheid in the 1940s. And the legacy of bitterness that, that runs underneath South African history, I think he's still there. I like to think, having you know, have had the chance to go to some um, conferences in South Africa, meet some really wonderful South Africans, I think there's a lot of good work being done to, to try and redress the balance and put the war in its context but it is a, a war that, for a British audience, I think we can forget how emotive it actually is. And so the legacy in South Africa, I would say, is still very controversial. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on and smashing this out of the park. That is probably the best one-hour encapsulation of the Boer War I've ever heard. Alina is actually excited by the Boer War. She didn't even <laughs> know it existed. I am very ex- The only thing I knew about was obviously the concentration camp part. The rest of it I didn't really know anything or well actually no zero about but that was amazing thank you so much thank you for having me on i i'm, I'm thank you for listening as well because uh, as you could tell it's a, a subject close to my heart and i don't get an o- enough opportunities to talk about it so thanks for your patience and i'm delighted <laughs> you've enjoyed it join us tomorrow when gabby story will be back to talk all about medieval regent queens that's women who stepped in and took the throne when the person who was supposed to be on it wasn't up to the job or wasn't old enough to do the job don't miss out on that one it's fascinating don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh alina and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh if you join us on either of those platforms uh, marcus is currently working on some benefits for you so uh There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.